0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you
1: Mormonism!
0: Good to see you again. We're here on Mormonism Live. We are up and running. Tonight,
2: your uh, research is going to be absolutely fascinating. You're going to be talking about a subject that I really did not know about and absolutely blown away by the research that you found and that you're going to be sharing with the audience tonight. But before that, but before that we have a report from a listener to the program who is a mole of Mormonism Live, a mole deep in the heart of or the belly, of the beast who works at some location full-time for the LDS Church. And he sends us reports periodically from where he is about what's going on with him. And we have a three-minute audio report from our mole to play for the audience tonight.
0: Yeah, so here it is. This is the audio you sent me. Let's hope this all works great, and here it goes. Hello, RFM. Apologies for the recording
3: this is the fastest way for me to get a response out to you. But I'm reporting again from behind enemy lines. Your your resident mole. Um, I wanted to apologize for the slow response uh, to my last email. Um, I do have this fantasy of coming on a podcast, going on a podcast and Um, telling my story and uh, going on as a newly resigned or even a current church employee who is going to resign, I've tentatively set my clock to uh, having to leave by the end of June for a variety of reasons, which I won't go into now. Uh, but the idea is, yeah, uh, I'd have to do this anonymously. Uh, I think I could be, there, there could be legal ramifications, as you may well know. Um, but uh, I will con- continue to contemplate this uh, idea because I think it would be interesting and also reveal uh, that. There are obviously many people like me inside uh, the machine uh, trying to find their way out. Um, But anyway, I wanted to comment on a great episode of which I missed the first hour because the clock times changed in the U.S. Um, I almost called in, but didn't. Um, but I've since watched the entire episode. Uh, this is your tales of Hoffman. I have some, a little bit of connection to this story as well, which I can tell you about another time, but at the beginning of your, of this episode, you make some really great comments about Reading some books about this soon after they came out and reading and not really understanding uh, what's going on, not really paying attention, and uh, didn't get much out of it. That's like the story of the Doctrine and Covenants, in my opinion. You know, you read all this over and over, and you're like, what the heck, and then. Anyway, then you said after a certain time goes by 30th anniversary, you reread the book and you understand it all like you know you get it all. you say you give permission to yourself to pay attention. That is extremely uh, observant, and that is exactly what uh, happened to me as I you know began reading as you begin to pay attention and to actually think about the ramifications of what you're reading. <laughs> this is what happened to me when I opened up Rough Stone Rolling and actually paid attention. Uh, but anyway, um, I'm going to shoot this off. hope this is not too long, but I, uh, I'm gonna, I will uh, continue to support you guys in some small way that I can uh great work I, I i will continue uh throwing this idea around about uh, coming on as a uh nearly resigned employee because it might be an interesting uh thing to discuss so uh have a great thursday bye bye
0: so there's there's your mole rfm you've got a guy on the inside who is accumulating information and at some point, maybe as not a employee of the church, we'll be having some conversations with you. I hope so. I hope he'll come on the show with us. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, What do you think about that?
2: I think he is uh, interesting. He's a great, great guy. Uh, I happen to know him by name, which I'm of course not going to divulge. And I think that he is representative of many similarly situated people who work for the
0: church, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. There's got to be a lot of them. I know a few myself, so it's got to be interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know that voice, and I haven't talked to that one, so that's not my mole. So you've well, got a you've got a mole, and I've got a mole. And we've I'm sure all the SCMC stones. Stones. like a seer stone.
2: I'm sure the SCM is running that tape through voice recognition as we speak.
0: Yeah, yeah, they probably are. Knowing them, they're certainly not sitting on their hands. No. So so tonight, uh, the topic, let me, uh, let me pull up here a screen and make sure that I've got all my stuff off and then we'll put you and me there and we can kind of talk about some of this stuff. So this was something I came across several years ago. This happened back in 2014 and, uh, I was interested in it then, but then I kind of forgot about it. And was going to do an episode on it, and didn't do that. And then about a year ago, I came across it again, and I talked to my buddy Chris out here at Family Pond about maybe him and I sitting down and talking about it, we never got to it. So I told you a couple of weeks ago that I wanted to talk about some of Joseph Smith's treasure-digging sites. In this particular one, this is called Miner's Hill. And so everybody kind of, you know, the title of the show tonight, uh, the the idea of uh, peak stones, sheep's bones and gold thrones all on miners Hill. We'll get into each of those words and how they're used in some of these quotes, but back in 2014 and I'll put each one of these websites as we go through them into the notes here. Let me just post this one really quick. So um, these, these two guys, Casey Kern, you see there by Casey Kern and then his buddy, Greg Pavone, back in 2014 decided to follow up on some uh, information about some of Joseph Smith's treasure digging sites. And in this one in particular, and so this is, I believe on property that used to be owned by Abner Cole or the Chase family. They they were next door neighbors. Abner Cole, as people might remember was Obadiah Dogberry. And uh, Abner Cole was a reporter for the local paper and he was, Taking illegally, taking uh, during the night, getting essentially copies, trans, you know, transcribing over a copy of the Book of Mormon printer's manuscript, and then publishing parts of it in the newspaper and kind of criticizing and making fun of Mormonism. And one of Joseph Smith's family, and Joseph Smith Jr. himself included, were treasure digging on Abner Cole's property, and so these guys found this spot. And they went and started to clear it up. And so folks can go read this history. I think it's deeply fascinating, Um, deeply fascinating. And so you can kind of read it on your own. They talk about some of the history. They talk about several quotes here that have to do with the translation. There are quotes from people inside and outside the church that what they had heard, again, it's gossip, it's second, third hand, What they're hearing is that parts of the Book of Mormon are being translated inside this miner's hill. We'll get to some of those in a minute. Uh, Religious significance, it talks about kind of a cool thing here. We'll get to this quote in a moment, but that this hill might have been where Moroni took the plates back to if there is a literal Moroni. You can see from the inside of this hill in the picture that's up on the screen right now that it's not just like a three-foot well or six-foot well. This is a literal cave that they're, Digging out of the side of the hill, RFM. And, and I I think when you understand the, the breadth and scope of Joseph Smith's treasure digging, which the church doesn't want to talk about really, I don't think there's a gospel topic essay on his treasure digging. It might have a brief mention in the translation of the Book of Mormon. But it's pervasive. It's 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 a big deal. And we'll get to Dan Vogel here in a second as well and and the prevalence of Joseph Smith and his family and the treasure digs they did. But as you can see from that hill, it's a, it's a big cave that's out. So these guys went and found it, started clearing it. They could tell where it was, but it also had kind of caved in. Uh, dirt on the front had kind of fallen off and kind of blocked the entrance. And so they started kind of clearing things out. They took measurements to kind of show how big stuff was. And again, if you're listening to this on the podcast, you're going to want to probably check us out on our YouTube channel. Sorry, you're, you're not going to be able to see it on Facebook this time around and maybe not for the next couple of weeks, but it is still running on YouTube and you can see us there.
2: Bill, can I yeah. ask you a couple questions? Please. First off, can you scroll back up there to that picture? You just passed a little bit more back, back. No, sorry. The other way, because there was a dog in there. See the dog?
3: Oh, uh,
0: dog. Right no, there. right there. I'm, I'm
2: pointing at my screen. You can't see what I'm pointing at. Is that the dog that
0: was allegedly sacrificed? No, no. That's, Did they find the dog too? That's not the dog who had his throat cut. Are you that, sure? Yeah, that's a different dog. That dog is dead. Long yeah, you you let it, you know, you let a sleeping dog lie. So that dog is gone. Okay, so some more serious
2: questions. Yeah. Um this is called Miners Hill. Where is it located?
0: This is I I don't want to I don't know if it's in Manchester or Palmyra, but it's like right there on the line. I think those two townships are right next to each other if I'm not mistaken.
2: So it's basically in Palmyra.
0: Yeah, it's it's near the Hill Camora. It's not very far away from the Hill Camora. There have, was a lot of confusion, confusing this site with the Kamora site. And folks recognize in these quotes, you'll, you, when you see these quotes later, you'll see some of them point to that Miners Hill is only a short distance away from the Hill Camora. And so there was some confusion about what was spoken about, because when people said Mormon Hill, sometimes they meant Kamora. Sometimes they meant this miner's hill. Um, and some of these quotes are just really fascinating. But um, again, the the dig, they show the old pictures, 1907, 2015. You've got 1974, uh, them taking pictures from inside the hill. Mm-hmm. I think that gate that you see is not the original one. I don't think that's the one that Smith put up. We'll get to some of the quotes about the gate as well. But you can see here on the picture on the screen on the left-hand side, uh, the kind of scope of some of these treasure digs and what it was involved. And it makes sense now, you know, as they're digging into the side of a hill and there's material in there and it goes, you know, it sinks further into the earth further. Doesn't necessarily have to be down further can be further into the hill. And now you just have to dig further. Uh, but these guys, I just, I, I have to applaud them for having taken on this, this activity. Uh, we'll get to some of the quotes that talk about the size of this hill, but kind of really cool.
2: By the way, um, is that Miner right there? There's a picture of Miner. That's the name of the family that owned the property that the oh, hill no, no. Is on?
0: That's John Gilbert, who was who set the type for the Book of Mormon at the Grandin oh. Print Press. And um, he has a cool quote, which I, I won't read right now. I want to get to that in a moment. Okay. Yeah, that's John Gilbert. Right.
2: And I did a little research when you brought this up because I really hadn't heard much about this at all. And so it's very interesting to me. Uh, according to the research I did, Miner's Hill is located about two miles away from what is commonly now understood to be the hill camora and like you say
0: hill camora that's in you know guatemala but right. uh, New york hill camora well
2: exactly mm-hmm. and so um so uh what was i going to say Sorry. um no it's okay uh about it's about two miles away and the name of the hill is miners hill not because there's a mine dug there but because oh. the name of the family that owned the hill was minor
0: yeah i think it was harold miner if i'm not mistaken uh, but it was the minor family, and we get a couple quotes from one of the minors here as we get through this. But um, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this particular part of the story because this is super fascinating, but I would just suggest that viewers and listeners go off and and read this. It'll be in the show notes at mormonismlive.org. Those links will all be up, everything that I use tonight, so you can go read this on your own. I think it's a fascinating story. There's a secondary website that talks about the same stuff. I think this is the other guy uh, who put up on his blog work that they were doing. So there's two two guys, two friends that took on this project and he also reports on it. There may be some overlap of details. In fact, I know there is, but there may be a few unique things to the second page as well. The third thing I wanted to bring up is I think everybody, uh, believing, unbelieving, doesn't matter. You should read the locations of Joseph Smith's early treasure quest by Dan Vogel. This was, I believe, a dialogue article uh, that was up at one time And uh, I have this on Mormon Discussions website as well. I don't generally share it from that site, but I couldn't find the PDF this morning on dialogue, but it's out there. And uh, this is a, I think it was like a 40 page, 35 page, 35 page document. And lots of quotes are in there about Joseph Smith's various treasure digs. If I remember right, there are 16 or 17 known treasure dig sites that are connected to Joseph Smith and the Smith family. And I think that's a lot more prevalent when you understand the size and scope of these digs into the sides of hills. And we'll get into some quotes that talk about some of the sizes of the other digs they did. These aren't just little like, hey, you and me and another guy get out and take a shovel or two and dig for 25 minutes and see what we find. This is days and days of digging and uh, in, in creating large, expansive spaces inside these mounds to try to figure out what, uh, if there's some kind of Spanish silver mine inside and okay, go ahead.
2: Oh, so you had pictures though, of this big, uh, tunnel and cave inside of Miners Hill uh, from 2014. Did these people in 2014, did they dig those holes and dig that cave at that time, or was no, it there before?
0: That was already there, except that, the hill had kind of eroded and so on the very front where the doorway was, it had kind of caved in on the front. So they had to clear out the front of the hill, kind of relocate where the doorway was. And once they got the doorway cleared, it was kind of an empty, empty space, an empty cavern going in. And, and so you got to see one of these cool treasure digging sites. Now, if the church had a real interest in history, it would buy that land and create a tour for all of us to, to walk through it and and reinforce all of this and make it really cool but you and I both know they don't want to talk about treasure digging at all. Well what
2: does this excavation in Miner's Hill in this cave have to do with Joseph Smith and early Mormon history pray tell.
0: Yeah, so what I wanted to share was that the way in which we understand some of the history may be impacted by this hill. And so let me throw up kind of some quotes and we'll talk about each of these. So here's the first one. And this is a really cool site. Um, this is archival link, archival.link backslash Mormon cave. And these guys, I think it's these two guys that did this, this dig to, to relocate Miners Hill. These guys put together a really cool website with tons of quotes on it. And so the first one is David Whitmer, 1878. And this is in an interview with P. Willem Polson, And I, and I bet both, most of these quotes are known. Most of these quotes are probably on Fair Mormon somewhere. But I don't think most of us know these quotes because we didn't even know where to look for them or what questions to ask. So Polson says, where are the plates now? Whitmer says, in a cave where the angel has hidden them up till the time arrives when the plates which are sealed shall be translated. God will yet raise up a mighty one the one mighty and strong, right? The mighty one who shall do his work till it is finished. And Jesus comes again. Where is that cave in the state of New York? Whitmer says in the Hill Camorra, Whitmer says, no, but not far from that place. So here's the first tidbit, which is that Moroni, when he takes the plates back, doesn't take them back to the Hill Camorra where they're originally located. Instead, he takes them to a cave. What cave is that? The evidence points to it being this miner's hill if Moroni is literal, if Joseph is telling a true story, then this cave is where the plates were housed. Now, we don't have really any record of the plates being discovered in this in this cavern. Um, and most of anything that was uh, left by Joseph Smith and the Smith family is gone now. There isn't really any artifacts or anything left. Everybody's raided this thing and used it. Uh, anything that was there has been stolen and taken out. But kind of a cool quote to start off with. The uh, The next one is William Kelly he's interviewing John Gilbert. John Gilbert was the helper to E.B. Grandin uh, at the Grandin Print Press. And so John Gilbert was the one who was the typesetter. And uh, William Kelly interviewing him, Gilbert says this, he says, I have seen Joseph Smith a few times, but not acquainted with him. Saw Hiram quite often. I am the party that set the type from the original manuscript for the Book of Mormon. They translated it in a cave. And this isn't the only quote that points to this. I don't know if I have others picked out for our show tonight. But if you go through this, uh, behind this white piece on the screen is the website that has all these quotes. You can click each one and then something like this will show up, this front screen. And um, you can read all these quotes. And there are multiple quotes that talk about the citizens of the area speculating that part of the translation took place in this cave. Now, we know... RFM that some of the translation took place in other places like Harmony, Pennsylvania. Um, But we, but we are now left to believe that at least part of the translation occurred in this cave based on, I think hearsay, but somewhat significant number of secondhand and thirdhand statements that point to this. So uh, anyway, these guys, by the way, the two guys that did the dig contacted the church and the church really didn't want anything to do with doing anything with this miner's cave. Uh, I can only speculate what the reasons would be for that, but they didn't want anything to do with it. Um, all right, next quote. Can I
2: just say something about they translated it in a cave? Yeah. That's shocking to me because of all the different accounts about the translation of the book of Mormon, I know we've gone through a little bit of a transition to the method of the translation, but not so far as I'm aware about the location of its translation. The first part I think was translated down in, um, harmony, Pennsylvania, and then the project got moved up to Fayette in New York for the the balance of the translation. I'm just talking about the Book of Mormon as we have it today, not the Mm -hmm. original 116 pages. But never, ever have I encountered anyone who has alleged that the translation or any part of it took place in a cave.
0: Yeah. And not only do multiple quotes point to a translation occurring in the cave, some of the quotes even mention the use of a curtain. And so we have like one or two statements in early church history where we were left to kind of think there was a curtain between Martin Harris and Joseph or Oliver Cowdery and Joseph. But there there may be, in fact, that the curtain is, in fact, at the front of this cave to block passerbys who are trying to tamper with whatever Joseph and whoever else is in there, what they're doing. Uh, it, to kind of keep them out of the know-how of what's going on behind that curtain. And and so some of the residents in the area point to a curtain being in this cave, keeping anybody outside the cave from seeing what was going on inside the cave. So kind of a cool thing. Um, the next quote is William Kelly interviewing Ezra Pierce uh, about his knowledge of the local account. Uh, he says, Abel Chase... Uh, by the way, I'm sorry. Does it say who Ezra Pierce is? No. Oh, he, says and, he, grew uh, up he grew up with the Smiths
2: in Manchester. Yeah, yeah only yeah. one year younger than Joseph?
0: Yep. On the left-hand side of every one of these quotes, it gives anybody who's being addressed. So it might be the reporter. It might be the newspaper. It might be the person being interviewed. It might be the person who's making the quote it gives you some information on each of those. So Ezra Pierce grew up with the Smith family in Manchester and was only one year younger than Joseph. It talks about who Abel Chase was. He was a neighbor of the Smiths in Palmyra. He was the brother of Willard Chase. That's important because that adds credibility to the story because Willard Chase is as closely connected with Joseph Smith during his treasure digging years as anybody. So the chases, I would trust them as having a more, significant base of knowledge about the Smiths family than other residents further away or less connected to the Smiths. Um, Elder William Kelly was president of the RLDS Council of the Twelve Apostles, and then the Saints Herald was the official publication of the RLDS Church. So they say, he says, Abel Chase has been in the cave with the Smiths where the sheep's bones were found. People used to think they were making counterfeit money. In other words, they spent, it's kind of that uh, criterion of embarrassment, right? Like, Something said, and maybe the thing being said isn't trustworthy, but there's some other data point that's attached that also seems like it's not a factor to the quote, but it seems to point to some historical basis. And so when they say that people used to think they were making counterfeit money, what it does tell you is that the Smiths spent considerable time in the cave, regardless of what they were doing and whether the general public was correct about what was going on there. So this cave, I think the Smiths spent a significant amount of time in this cave doing whatever they were doing behind a curtain or at least in the dark somewhat.
2: Yeah, in addition to that, it tells me that they weren't being open and talking about what it was they were doing in the cave, which left it to other people to speculate.
0: It's a secret, right. Whatever's going on in there, nobody knows, and everybody's left to guess. Hmm. So that's kind of a cool thing. The cave is over there in a hill now, a large cave. It is about a mile from... Uh, it says Mormon Hill, so they might be meaning Kimura there, and it seems like that would be the most easy mm-hmm. uh, location to point to for everybody to kind of geographically base themselves. Right? I never saw it. Besides, it was all—it's all caved in now, so you could—you could not see anything. There is no cave there now; it is all fallen in. So there's that. Now I will point to as a as a, a team of folks who like to value truth. You and I, I will point to that. Um, Abel Chase is being interviewed by William, William Kelly as well. Did you ever see the Smiths dig for money or did you ever see the cave where they met at Abel Chase himself? Remember the other guy said it was Abel Chase who had been there. This guy says, and Abel himself says, no, I never saw them dig myself. I never saw the cave. So I, I take Abel at face value. That seems like an honest statement. Uh, Even though other people are pointing to him, having been in the cave or seen it, he says he was never there. Ellen Dickinson, says here, Ellen Dickinson was the grandniece of Solomon Spaulding, huh, who investigated the Spaulding authorship claims for the Book of Mormon. She wrote on her observations, she said, just beyond the well, a quarter mile or so in the minor farm, on which is shown a cave or excavation that was used by Smith and his close followers while engaged in deciphering the golden plates. It was originally boarded in but is in dilapidated condition at present. The same family owned the farm now that owned it in Joe, Joe Smith's time. The elder s- members have passed away, but the present occupants are quite familiar with the events. My understanding is that this originally sat on either the Chase property or Abner Cole property. And then still during the life of Joseph Smith, the property was sold off to the minor family and the miner family did own it during Joseph Smith's living life. Although I don't know that Joseph was ever in Palmyra at the time that the miners owned it. I think they had moved on at that point to Nauvoo and other places. So, so there's this
2: appears that. to be a, a second source that's talking about the deciphering of the golden golden plates going on in the cave.
0: Yeah. So again, we, we can surmise if we're going to be rational, logical human beings, that it is likely that a lot of time was spent in that cave. If, as you pointed out in your episodes on the hat and magic, if they're, if they were working off a document, Working in a cave by themselves, excluding anybody on the outside from being able to see in, uh, makes it much easier for a man or two to then work off of documents and transcribe those essentially. In other words, have a pre-written Book of Mormon and then essentially come out of the cave with the Book of Mormon written a second time. Um, It it becomes a little less far stretched when we understand that this cave may have been involved. All right, next quote. This is Braden and Kelly citing Samantha Payne's local knowledge. Clark Braden was the leader of the Church of Christ uh, Disciples sect. E.L. Kelly was the leader of the RLDS Church. They had a public debate about the origins of Mormonism. Samantha Payne was a Palmyra local acquainted with the Smiths. And they said, citing Samantha Payne, what she said. So again, we're now we're talking second or third hand. After Smith came back from Pennsylvania, his followers dug a cave in the hillside not far from here. They conducted the work of getting up Mormonism in it. So there's a third source. I was in it once. It can be seen today. The present owner of the farm, Mr. Miner, dug out the cave which had fallen in. The cave has a large heavy plate door and padlock on it. And this, by the way, there are multiple quotes that point to the Smiths putting the padlock and gate door on the front of it so that people could not get in. The neighbors broke it open one night and found in it a barrel of flour, some mutton, some sheep pelts, and two sides of leather. Kind of specific to be making things up. Those are some specific details, but it is interesting, and it is, a sense in a sense, her- hearsay, but kind of another source pointing to. And that, it also
2: answers a question that had come to my mind, which is where one of the witnesses had talked about the cave existing, in Joseph Smith's day, but it had since fallen in. Yeah. And yet in 2014, when these two fellows are doing the excavation, apparently there's a cave there. It's not fallen in. But here she says that the present owner of the farm, Mr. Miner, dug out the cave, which had fallen in.
0: Yeah. So, so that would it, account for that. Yeah. So it may have it may have fallen in, and then the homeowner essentially excavates it again. And But when they say fall in, I don't take it that the hill caved in. Because you could see in the early pictures, the hill's still there. Right. What, the, what I think they're pointing to is that the very front of the cave eroded away and essentially a little bit of a landslide kind of occurs at the front of that and blocks the doorway several feet in. And so it becomes essentially blocked in or caved in. Um I will note too, when you go to all these sources, you not only get the money quote at the top in the gray box that you're all looking at, and to the left, the um, explanation of who these people are that are speaking and whatever sources these came from. But if you want a more full account, you can go down below. It has notes and commentary. So they'll be honest and say, hey, like Samantha's testimony is clearly antagonistic, but her details about Miner's Hill Cave seem consistent with other accounts, which we're pointing to as well. And then it has the long form source text. So it gives the entire statement that is attributed to that person so that you can see that things are not out of context and see the context that those things are in. Uh, So there's that one. Let me try to find the next one. This is RLDS Apostle William Kelly interviewing Lorenzo Saunders, who is also a very uh, well-known figure in the early Palmyra history associated with Joseph Smith. says here Lorenzo Saunders was a Palmyra acquaintance of the Smiths. He was the son of Enoch Saunders, who had three sons, Orlon, Orlando, Lorenzo, and Benjamin. The Saunders own the land where the cave was. Lorenzo has two nephews, Orson and Timothy, who continued to live in the area through the 1890s. So again, I, I want to just know all of these neighbors are really close to each other. Chase, yeah. Abner Cole, Lorenzo Saunders. And this property seems to be kind of right on the edge of these properties where they're all kind of touching each other. So it may formally be in Lorenzo Saunders' property. <laughs>
2: And I think it was Orlon, Orlando Saunders who was in the same money digging company with Joseph Smith.
0: Yeah. Look at that.
2: He was born in 1803. So he's a couple years older than Joseph Smith.
0: Yeah. Um, and so when he's interviewing Loren Lorenzo Saunders, this is what, uh, apostle William Kelly records Lorenzo saying, he says, I saw them dig in a hill. Joe could look in his peepstone and see a man sitting in a gold chair. Old Joe said he was King, the man in the chair, the King of one of the tribes who was shut in there in the time of one of their big battles. This digging was a mile from the Smiths. Don't know as there was anything in the cave. The cave was on our place. This was in 1826. The cave had a door to it. We tore it off and sunk it in a pit of water where they got the dirt to cover the coal, cover a coal pit. A couple things of note here. Um, is first off this idea that there is a guardian spirit in treasure digging. And that seems to be at this moment when Joseph, if this story is accurate, if this if this secondhand account is accurate about what Joseph Smith framed this narrative as, it should be noted that this now seems to be somewhere in between Moroni, the spiritual angel ministering servant of Heavenly Father, who's come to give the restored gospel, and a guardian spirit who watches over treasures. Uh, It seems to be almost kind of a mix of those as you read that. The idea of a gold uh, chair, uh, which is where I got the gold thrones from. Uh, Joe says he was a king. Now, we don't really reference Moroni as a king. That's a different kind of language. That's a different kind of rhetoric. Uh, Also, these battles. Remember, the battles took place in these hills, and people are very clear now, both in and out of the church. There are no epic battles at the Hill Cumorah. There are no, you know, million skeletons because those battles were reported to be thousands and hundreds of thousands and sometimes even greater numbers in these armies. And the Hill Cumorah and this Mormon Hill, there's no skeletons there. There's certainly not a war that was fought in these areas. Um, It seems to point to the inaccuracy of some of the things Joseph Smith imposed as narratives that really don't hold up to scrutiny. Can I say a couple things about this?
2: Yeah. First thing is that this is being presented as firsthand knowledge. He says, I saw them dig in a hill. So he's not recounting what he heard from somebody else, at least as it's presented here in the statement. Um, The second thing is, is he talks about uh, old Joe said he was king, the man in the chair, a king of one of the tribes who was shed in there in the time of one of their big battles. Now, the first thing that
0: comes to my mind is shades of Zelf. Ooh, and and you pointed out too that Joseph Smith is a great storyteller long before he has the plates and is translating. This seems to be another indication that Joseph Smith goes into this idea of digging already knowing the story that's gonna come out from the plates, um, knowing at least that there were battles and things that happened. Um, again, knowing what I know now, it becomes kind of a stretch for Joseph Smith to have that much detail about these stories before he translates the Book of Mormon.
2: And I'll say one last thing that that kind of narrative doesn't fit with what we generally understand about the Book of Mormon narrative. Um, However, it fits pretty comfortably within the Jaredite narrative because the Jaredite narrative is very different in the battles that they wage. Uh, Frequently, there's a there's a theme of taking the person who is in line to be the king or who is the king and the opposing party kidnaps them and then keeps them in captivity. And then there's battles that w- that are waged between the armies because the army that wants their king back is trying to fight to release their king. And sometimes they win and sometimes they don't. But that's what I think it's more comfortable with, saying there's a king, a man in the chair who was shut in there in the time of one of their big battles. That yeah. sounds like it fits right in the uh, the Book of Ether.
0: Or, or Indiana Jones in uh, the Holy Grail, right? Indiana Jones and in the search for the Holy Grail, there was the last of the knights who is stuck in the in this, you know, place that Indiana and his father are trying to get to. Right. He's essentially protecting the Holy Grail, but he yeah. stayed there to protect it. It's it's this strange story of when you look back at the pictures, it's just a common hill in the middle of Palmyra and Manchester. And yet here we have this fanciful story of a king inside there that was stayed there and somehow was locked up in there and there he is a skeleton still in there but his spirit is still protecting whatever they're trying to dig out it really is a treasure digging story it's not a restored gospel story
2: yeah it's very interesting very interesting
0: okay next quote this is arthur deming uh publishing joseph rogers statement about his local knowledge joseph rogers was a local and an acquaintance of joseph smith he and joseph were the same age that's important because you would have been in school together For whatever education you did get, you would have hung out together. You would have ran in the same circles or at least known each other. uh, Much higher likelihood. It's not Uh, a big community. No. Arthur Deming was an ardent anti-Mormon journalist who labored to secure evidence proving the fraudulent origin of Mormonism. He published naked truths about Mormonism, including many statements from those who were acquainted. Uh, He says that uh, Joseph Rogers, intimated. Joe Smith and his his adherents dug a cave in a hill in Manchester, New York, and used to go there, he said, to consult with the Lord. He had a door at the entrance fastened with a padlock. Second second statement about a door and a padlock. The sheriff took possession and found much property which had been stolen from farmers about there. Joe had left for Ohio. It was believed that Joe intended to remove the property. I want to note that what a scryer does is a scryer finds lost objects. And to get that reputation, you have to find a few lost things. Part of me wonders if Joseph Smith stole things from the surrounding community, put them in the cave. And then when a person or two came to him looking for their lost things, darn it, that stone in the hat works really damn well when you're the one who stole the item and put it in your cave to hide it. So I'm not saying that's the case. But I would at least open up plausibility for that kind of a uh, idea, knowing that there's at least one report that points to stolen the sheriff found stolen things in there that were stolen from the farmers throughout the town. Hmm.
2: And of course, if if this is what's going on, you don't look in your stone and say, Hey, uh, your stolen stuff is in the cave I helped dig.
0: No, no, no. With me- the door
2: in a padlock. <laughs> yeah. You go off somewhere. Yeah. And then you find it. And then you yeah. ascribe it to your seership.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yep. Next one here, Arthur Deming publishing Sylvia Walker. Does that name ring a bell? Sylvia uh, a statement about her local knowledge.
2: Well, it's like half the women in the neighborhood ended up married to Joseph Smith. Is that one of them?
0: Uh, Lucy Walker is one that was married to Joseph Smith. I don't know if this is the same family or not. It says it was a neighbor. I, I highly doubt it since those marriages occurred in, uh, in Nauvoo, but at okay, least me, in the other half. At least makes me wonder. Sylvia Walker was a neighbor of the Smiths in Manchester and was a student of Oliver Cowdrey's. That's right. He's a school teacher. He's and, like he's a Joseph and he's Joseph Smith's cousin. Absolutely. So I think that's also plays an important part. Cowdrey didn't just magically show up in Palmyra. He came to visit his family and he took a teaching job there, right? Oliver oh, Cowdrey is Joseph
2: Smith's cousin?
0: Yes. Uh, if anybody wants to share a source in the notes, I am a hundred percent sure that those two are related and it may be cousin, it may be second cousin, but they are definitely related. And my gut tells me Oliver Cowdery didn't show up in Palmyra just out of the blue and that the Smiths and the Cowderys know each other. And of course, we already know Oliver Cowdery is in the same area as Ethan Smith and view of the Hebrews. So there are lots of little tangential connections that we can get lost in the weeds. But yes, Oliver Cowdery is family. To so the
2: she's, a, she's a student of, of Oliver Cowdery.
0: Then. Yep. yep. Uh, says here, she says, Joe claimed to have received to receive a revelation to dig 40 feet into a hill about two miles north of where he pretended to find the gold plates of the book of Mormon. So another, That's where I got the two miles from. Yep. Yeah, uh, where he could, where he would find a cave that contained gold furniture, chairs, table. The Mormons dug into the hill horizontally over 40 feet without finding any cave. The boys troubled them. So they placed a door with a lock at the entrance the boys placed brush against it and destroyed it with fire. The Mormons abandoned it. I heard our neighbors say, probably Joe Smith dug his fat sheep and barrels of flour out of it. So now you have a second statement about sheep and flour being inside there. So also kind of an interesting uh, interesting little thing. You know
2: something? I would like to see the original document because "dug" does not make sense as a verb in that last sentence, but hid would.
0: The Mormons abandoned it. I heard our neighbors say, probably Joe Smith dug his, no, no. I think he had sheep and flour already in the cave and people in the town then tried to start a fire on the outside of the cave gate. And so then they thought maybe Smith would try to come and rescue his sheep and grab his flour.
2: Oh, okay. Cause I would think if he's got fat sheep in there, they only have a short shelf life.
3: Yeah, no, cave. no.
0: Yeah, no. <laughs> and, and I think these are, I think these are the Smith's family sheep on Lorenzo Saunders property bordering on Abner Cole and in the chase farm as well. So you've got the gold furniture again, the gold chair. Yeah. Gold furniture, chairs and table, um, which I think is interesting and seemingly doesn't play well into Moroni, right? Like you and I both know it's hard enough to find a Mormon horse. It's going to be a lot harder to find a gold chair and gold table in book of Mormon times among the Nephites and the Lamanites. That's, that's a little ridiculous. Well, what do you think King Noah was sitting in? Uh, yeah. Where was King Noah sitting? Yeah, he was, he was sitting you know, in gold furniture. It sure was. That again, Have you seen ab- the picture? Yeah, I know. But the absurdity of those pictures. <laughs> By the way, when, when Abinadi is answering to King Noah yes, and the other priests there and Alma the elder has been offended and left, who is recording what Abinadi said? Well, I guess Abinadi is he gets killed. He's burned at the stake, and he doesn't get a chance to release his records. He's held prisoner, and he testifies. His testimony's written down, RFm, hence the necessity of
2: angels appearing to people to give messages.
0: that's it. But you and I, but there's not a damned living soul around who's sharing the data that Abenediah is running through. There's nobody there to to tell those scriptures. but we, a, have, we have them nonetheless.
2: It is a multi-chapter detailed sermon that is recorded, you're right, when yeah, nobody yeah. who nobody is left in the target. room, yes, and dead men tell no tales.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so just another Mormon absurdity that doesn't make sense, and yet fair Mormon goes, no, 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 there's, there's a loophole. We can figure this out. Uh, there really isn't. There's a thousand things that need explanations that don't have any. Um, okay, so this, we read this one here. Next one is the Wayne County Journal reprinting a story from the Rochester Herald. Uh, It talks about those folks on the side, but I'm just going to read this as the digging for those supposed plates was usually carried on at night and at the time had been in progress for several evenings. A huge cave had been made on the side of the hill, not far from the top. Mr. Pierce and companion dropped a huge black sheep on the working Mormons. A circle was found around the cave in the morning made with the sheep's blood. So there we go with, uh, another, uh, animal sacrifice, a magic circle, occultic practices. We already have records of other sheep. We have records of other dogs and other documents being sacrificed for the Smiths and those with them in the treasure digging activities to create a magic circle and create a spell that keeps the guardian spirit from stopping them and keeps the treasure from sinking fast or sinking further into the earth. And as you and I have both read through D Michael Quinn and others, um, these incantations had to be said just right. There were lots of issues with Any time something was said wrong, it gave Joseph Smith an excuse and he could say the treasure had sunk further into the earth and damn it, we all messed up. We'll have to try it again some other time. But it is fascinating history uh, in Mormonism. Who is this Mr. Pearson, a companion dropping sheep on people? Ezra, uh,
2: let's see here. Uh, I mean, that seems awfully rude.
0: Mr. Pierce. So that's Ezra Pierce. Grew up with the Smiths in Manchester and was only one year younger than Joseph. And remember, Joseph's either kind of a kid, an older teenager, at at best, a young adult at any moment that any of these quotes are coming from. Um, I thought there was one more thing in this one, but let me just see here real quick. Yeah, check it out. I'll do some commentary because this sounds like a scene
2: out of Monty Python dropping sheep on people. Yeah, this bottom. <laughs> I mean, how do you feel if you're just sitting there working your guts out trying to dig a hole? And all of a sudden, here comes a sheep, bam.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't want a sheep a sheep being dropped on you. That's kind of like last week when you talked about Lord of the Flies and the rock being dropped on Piggy, right? Yeah.
2: What, are sheep just that commonplace? You can just go dropping them on people willy-nilly. Maybe yeah. it wasn't their sheep.
0: No, it might have been the Smith's sheep because we just got told okay. in the last quote that they had sheep inside the hill. Uh, it's this last sentence. Smith told his followers that the blood of a lamb would keep the devil away. Hmm. That seems to have some Old Testament ties. we New Testament, said, by the way. Yeah, we mean in New Testament. And it said that a neighboring farmer lost his bell whether that night and a circle was formed around the cave in the morning made with the sheep's blood. So some, some little uh, magical occultic practices of the Smith's. Well so, – there's that they had,
2: they had a sheep dropped in their lap. What are they going to do?
0: Right. Well, you might as well. You might as well do an incantation. And for all we, we know, the,
2: the sheep got dropped off, hit his head on a rock, and then ran around in circles until he died.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> like a chicken with his head cut off. Okay. Uh, now we get into a couple things here, more modern. This is Hugh Nibley. Hugh Nibley actually commented on, on all of this material. Uh, Nibley said the story of the origin of the Book of Mormon attracted the curiosity of the nation. Yet the melodramatic properties of the most secret cave where it was made interested nobody.
2: Is and that like, nobody that you've been quoting? It seems like a lot of
0: nobodies. I Yeah. It, it doesn't interest anybody, right? But all of us are interested. Well, all those people that you're quoting from. Yeah. And by whose permission was the cave guarded anyway? Smith didn't own the land. Why wasn't he ordered off? Well, it's because all of these guys – are involved in treasure digging and they're all interested to see what the smiths find when they do the dig. It's not like Joseph is just on Lorenzo Saunders property digging with and those guys don't want him there and he's doing it, you know, against their will. It's that all of these guys are treasure digging and they're all trying to find Spanish silver mines and gold thrones and gold tables and they're digging all over the place on each other's property. And uh, they don't really have a problem. But Hugh Nibley dismisses it out of hand with, without really considering the credibility of what's being said. And then eventually the the LDS Church, um, and by the way, C. Smith at work in the cave translating the Book of Mormon. That's uh, I think Pomeroy Tucker. Uh, and then Nibley's commenting on the material. Um The last quote is the church itself uh, makes a statement. This is the post standard reporting on a statement from the LDS church in relation to the caves rediscovery. The church, the church's historian could not find any apparent record of Joseph Smith ever having dug such a cave. Uh, I'm just going to say it right now. Bullshit. They
2: obviously tried really hard.
0: (laughs) We've just showed a few of them and there, and there aren't just a few I'll X this out in a moment and show you all the quotes. But um, he said, the only reference to such a cave in church history was made in a speech by Brigham Young in 1877. So I I didn't go find that quote, but there must be. I have it,
2: by the way. Oh, I'd love to tell us. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is just fascinating to me because, you know, this is 1974. I hope they're not referring to Leonard Arrington, but it's being passed through the PR department. And it seems that you, Bill Real, should be the church historian.
0: I would be much more forthright, transparent, honest yeah, that, it, well, you, would, it would be much better.
2: Well, you can find a bunch of quotes that they couldn't find.
0: Yeah, and I would have released a lot of things that Leonard Arrington wasn't able to as well.
2: That's probably true as well.
0: <laughs> so here's the thing about it, though, because this ties
2: into this wonderful story that I'd heard as a, a Mormon, and many people have. It's about the cave, right? The cave is supposed to be in the hill Camorra. But it's not talked about in the history of the church that we have in the Pearl of Great Price. Instead, it starts surfacing these stories a number of years later. And there was an article that was written in, let me see if I can find it here. It is, um, it's called Camorra's Cave, and it's published in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies back in, it's volume 13, number one, back in 19, no, 2004. OK, so relatively recently and what this fellow does, let me give him credit here. It's Cameron J. Packer is the name of the author, and he assemblates all the different quotes that relate to this cave in the hill Camora. And once again, as you're saying, and it's fascinating to me that there is apparently confusion between Miner's Hill and the hill Camora or the Mormon Hill. But then I think, well, wait a second. It's not like this hill was called Cumorah by all the farmers in the neighborhood. And it was a fixed point that everybody could agree on. Oh, that's the Hill Kimura. It wasn't the Hill Kimura until Joseph Smith identified it as such at some point in church history. And there's a little bit of a dispute about that as to who identified it and when anyway. So that's already squishy. The identification of Kimora mm-hmm. as Kimura. And if you find, um, oh, the Heartland theorists, right? Well, for them, that's camora for those who go for the limited geography in mesoamerica no joseph smith never identified it as camora and actually that was a misnomer that got dreamt up and passed along by other people in the church and really it's this hill down in mesoamerica that is the hill camora which yes. is where the,
0: go ahead no 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 i was just going to say there's images that show like moroni in a room with all the plates around him and once you understand the historical context, it's actually more likely that this miner's hill is the place that they would have kind of imposed would have been where all these plates were, or at least one of the locations that would have been uh, proposed as the place where all these plates were stored. Again, we had the quote where the plates from Moroni are taken back to this miner's hill rather than the Hill Camora. And that came from David Whitmer himself, uh, one of the three witnesses. I think we have to start making room that we're not really sure exactly what the story is, even if the story is fiction to begin with, it seems like there's a lot of inconsistency in this narrative. Making room for making a room, yeah, making right.
2: Oh, that wasn't too obscure. Okay. No. Anyway, no, it lists all these things, and there's a bunch of them. Uh, they start with the earliest reference in 1855. So when I say years later, I mean like decades later, right? Mm-hmm. And this is from somebody's diary. And I'll just read this really quickly. I'm not going to read them all, but this is from a guy named William Horn Dame Diary, 14 January, 1855, where he says, attended meeting a discourse from W.W. Phelps. He related a story told him by Hiram Smith, which was as follows. Joseph, Hiram, Cowdery, and Whitmer went to the hill, Cormora. Now here it's spelled Cormora. As they were walking up the hill, a door opened and they walked into a room about 16 feet square in that room was an angel and a trunk mm. on that trunk lay a book of mormon and gold plates laven sword aaron's breastplate
0: yeah there are some suggestions that maybe the four of the eight witnesses had their experience in this cave there is um and just i'll, I'll point out on the screen right now is a quote from dan vogel's uh article in dialogue the locations of joseph smith's early treasure quest says maps and quotes regarding joseph smith's treasure digging it said they sometimes dug a small hole three foot deep uh the diameter of a well holes three foot deep and 12 foot in circumference and others were eight foot deep and 16 foot in circumference still not super big when you understand circumference is the outside of a circle uh not not seriously big um but this miner's hill was referred to as being forty foot deep into the side of a hill and sixteen to thirty feet wide, with several sources talking about there might even been rooms off the main room. Right. Um, yeah, so quite. And, an- it, and
2: interestingly to me, the um, this cave in Miners Hill is roughly approximating those dimensions that are described in the stories. Is that correct? Say that again. The dimensions of the actual cave that was excavated in Miners Hill do roughly match these dimensions as Mm -hmm. reported in these sources, correct?
0: Yeah, it looks like it's about 14 foot deep into the hill and about 16 or so feet wide.
2: Okay, so here we go. That's one. Now, two is Heber C. Kimball. You can find this in the Journal of Discourses. Not going to read it. I'm going to get to the the famous one by Brigham Young. I just want to give you an idea as to how many people talked about this. Third is a manuscript history of Brigham Young, 1867. Fourth is Wilford Woodruff Journal, where he's quoting President Young. Elizabeth Kane Journal, who's not even a member of the church. Oh, hers is fun, okay. She's not a member of the church, right? She lives in St. George, Utah. Down in your neck of the woods, Bill. Look at that. She entertains the company of Brigham Young. Brigham Young comes over for dinner and she records the following discussion. This is 1873. I asked where the plates were now and saw in a moment from the expression of the countenances around that I had blundered. But I was answered that they were in a cave that Oliver, this is Brigham Young answering her question. I was answered that they were in a cave that Oliver Cowdery, though now an apostate would not deny that he had seen them. He had been to the cave. Brigham Young's tone was so solemn that I listened, bewildered like a child to the evening, witch stories of its nurse. Mm. Mm. So there's one from a cave. That's from a non-member Oliver Cowdery associated with it. And, and then, um, Well, let's see. That's uh, there. Then there's uh, Jesse Nathaniel Smith Journal. And now we get to number seven, which is Brigham Young Journal of Discourses. So this is June of 1877. This is shortly before he passes away. I think it was was definitely in 1877. I think it might have been in August. And then there's a couple of others that are uh, listed here. By the way, these are listed chronologically. And the last one, is it the last one? Um, No, it's not the last one, but number nine out of ten is the one that you read from David Whitmer, which was given in 1878, where Mm -hmm. he says, uh, yeah, uh, Moroni took the plates back. uh, Let me see here. In a cave. Where are the plates now? In a cave. Where is that cave in the state of New York? In the hill of Camorra? No, but not far away from that place. That's the one where he read that. But here's uh, Brigham Young real quick. And I say real quick because he gets detailed. Oliver Cowdery went with the prophet Joseph when he deposited these plates
3: Mm.
2: now by the way can I ask you a question when in church history as I learned it from the church paying attention
0: and studying yeah
2: does Joseph Smith ever deposit the plates
0: yeah when does Oliver Cowdery go with Joseph Smith to deliver the plates to Moroni it's just like what we understand is the translation gets finished and the angel just shows up and just takes the plates from them right
2: they go deliver them There's no place in church history, at least as I've understood it, as taught by the church, where Joseph Smith ever deposits the plates.
0: Have you ever wondered if maybe what really happened is every single connection to treasure, treasure digging was erased? Every single quote and connection that puts Joseph Smith as a treasure digger was removed completely from the narrative that we tell. You
2: know... It's starting to kind of look that way, isn't it? It does. And we'll get to another part here in a second. Uh, uh, It's another story that we've all heard that is very interesting in this light. But I'll I'll go on. Oliver Cowdery went with the prophet Joseph when he deposited these plates. If Oliver Cowdery is going, presumably this is after the translation is over, right? Joseph did not translate all of the plates. There was a portion of them sealed. Okay, we know this. We're on familiar ground again, which you can learn from the book of Doctrine and Covenants. When Joseph got the plates, the angel instructed him to carry them back to the hill Cumorah which he did, okay, so apparently when he got him, he was told when he was done to take him back. Oliver says that when Joseph and Oliver went there, this is Brigham Young talking, Oliver says that when Joseph and Oliver went there, the hill opened and they walked into a cave in which there was a large and spacious room. He says, and this is uh, going from Oliver Cowdery, he says he did not think at the time whether they had the light of the sun or artificial light, because presumably it would be dark in a cave, right? But it wasn't, but that it was just as light as day. They laid the plates on a table. Furniture, anyone? They laid the plates on a table. It was a large table that stood in the room. Under this table, there was a pile of plates as much as two feet high. And there were altogether in this room, more plates than probably many wagon loads. That's a lot of plates. Yeah. That's a big Twinkie. They were piled up in the corners and along the walls. The first time they went there, the sword of Laban hung upon the wall. And this is part that I'd remembered, right? The, the first time they went there, so they'd been there multiple times.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: First time they went there, sword of Laban hung upon the wall, but when they went again, it had been taken down and laid upon the table across the gold plates. It was unsheathed and on it was written these words whosoever pulleth out this sword from this stone is rightwise. No, 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 that's not what it was. No, (laughs) No, that's not what it says. Um, I've just seen that people are paying attention. This sword, this is what's written on the sword. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, that's bringing up all sorts of things, but uh, like the Liahona, and writing appearing from time to time on the Liahona. Well, apparently writing, appears on the sword. This sword will never be sheathed again until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and his Christ. That's what Brigham Young really says. Oliver Cowdery told him was written on the sword. I tell you this, this is Brigham Young continuing. I tell you, this is coming not only from Oliver Cowdery, but others who were familiar with it and who understood it just as well as we understand coming to this meeting. Mm. Don Carlos Smith, was a young man of as much veracity as any young man we had. And he was a witness to these things. Samuel Smith saw some things. Hiram saw a good many things, but Joseph was the leader.
0: Mm. Interesting stuff.
2: So here's this whole thing about um, the cave. And this is, this is the whole idea. This is where all the Nephite records are deposited.
0: Right? And way, we should note that David, or not yet, yeah, David Whitmer, to me, would be a more credible witness than Brigham Young. David is there at the time that all of this is going on. He's one of the three witnesses. He would have had firsthand knowledge of some of this. Brigham Young is only being told the story after the fact. He joins the church after it's already established.
2: Right, right. And there's this whole squishiness about the name of the Hill Cumorah, right? And in the Hill Cumorah, as we understand it today, no caves. In Miners Hill, cave.
0: Yeah, Yep. And I want to read one more quote. So we talked about the sheep's bones and Gold Thrones. When I used the word peak stone, some people thought I did a misspelling accidentally and I should have put peep stones. But we have Ellen Dickinson talking about her observations. If we go down here, she says the spot where the famous peak stone was discovered on the property of Clark Chase. Now, this would have been if if, if she's got her story right, and she and it's obvious that she doesn't. The peak stone discovered on the property of Clark Chase would be the brown egg shaped stone discovered in 1822 digging the well on the Chase property with Joseph and Willard, Joseph Smith and Willard Chase. She mentions the year 1819, which would have been the year Joseph Smith got his first seer stone, which was the white one that he got from borrowing Sally Chase's green seer stone and then being told that his seer stone was 200 miles away buried underneath a tree now. You and I both know Joseph Smith as a 13-year-old boy in 1819. by the way, 13 years old. That's the kind of kid that's telling these fanciful stories. He's 13 years old. It amazes me at that young age that he's doing all of this. You and I both know he didn't go 200 miles to find a rock. It would have been much easier for him to have done some sort of digging on Miner's Hill, a small little hill with trees up above and to dig into the side of the hill which would have gotten you under the tree where you would have found a rock that you would have called your seer stone. The spot where the famous peak stone was discovered on the property of Clark Chase in the year 1819 is now marked by a gray slab which stands close to the well. The well which was being dug when when this white stone, see she points to the 1819 seer stone, when this white stone in the shape of a child's foot was turned up and appropriated by the future seer. She seems to be convoluting two different stories, right? She seems to be mixing up two stories. The tradition is that Joseph ran home across lots some two miles, not 200, two miles to show his mother this new possession, which was like most, if not all of his later possessions, unlawfully gained, and that from this date he saw wonders through the peaker. Uh, it being employed by himself and perhaps others in the neighborhood to find anything or everything they imagined or desired, uh, especially if they stole it and stuck it in the hill to start off with Uh, the slight elevation where Clark chase resided for whom the well was excavated is now bare of any tenement. The former dwelling having been either burned or torn down a long time ago. So she seems to be mixing facts, but it is interesting to note that she seems to see some relationship to this white seer stone in 1819 with some of the stories that are being told around this cave um and the chase property um and i think that's sufficient for me those were mainly the quotes that i wanted to go over uh what are the thoughts do you have on this or anything else rfm well
2: it's this whole idea about this cave being the repository of all of the nephite records and this is the cave where all the records were that the book of mormon tells us that mormon perused, and made his abridgment on the plates that became the Book of Mormon, right? So there's actually a location for it. It is in the hill, and different people have related stories about going to that hill, going into the cave in that hill, and seeing all of these records written on uh, gold plates that are under the table. They're stacked up against the walls. They're everywhere because it's an entire civilization's record. Um, That's one thing. Second thing is this. Every every member of the church, when they have to tell a story about uh, Joseph Smith and Moroni and the gold plates, invariably they get asked the question, well, what happened to the gold plates? And the answer that we have to give is, well, Moroni took them with him. And usually that's where we end it. Certainly that's where I always ended it, because no thought is necessary beyond that, because really what you're trying to answer is why they aren't around anymore for people to actually look at and experts to examine Well, the angel took them. But then the question is, well, where did Moroni take them? That's the question. I never allowed myself to ask. Uh, I guess sort of in the back of my mind, I, I envisioned him eternally lugging them around with him, but obviously he's got to put them somewhere unless he's going to carry them for the rest of eternity. Where did he take them? Well, the answer apparently was in early church history, he took them back, to the hill. He took him back to where they came from, which was in this room with all the plates. And whether you call it the Hill Camora or this hill, and I think that this may be the original two Camorra theory.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is the Guatemalan Hill Camora right here, two miles away from the actual Hill Camora.
2: Right, because I think that there might be two hills at Camora and we haven't even left the neighborhood of Joseph Smith no. to get there. But I did want to talk about this story because this is so fascinating to me because this ties right into it, which is where were the plates? They were kept in the hill. And here we have a couple of statements about oh uh, Joseph and Oliver having to deposit the plates back in the hill or in the cave. And that's where they, they reside, right? Because that's where they would belong where they were housed for hundreds and hundreds of years, presumably. But there's this great story in church history, and it's a story about Joseph Smith and some other people on a wagon, and they're going along the country road. They pass by this uh, this guy who they don't know from Adam, just some guy who's got a knapsack over his shoulder and something heavy in it. And Joseph Smith identifies that person as Moroni. Remember that story? Mm-hmm. Everybody's heard that story, but I went back and I read it more carefully this time. And what the story mm-hmm. indicates, right, is the same thing, that Moroni has the plates, and he's going to keep them in Kimura. That's where they are deposited for safekeeping. Um, Let me get to my outline here. Okay, here it is. By the way, this story is uh, told in many places. This one is from January 1992 Enzyme Magazine in an article provocatively titled Moroni, Joseph Smith Tudor. It's by H. Donald Peterson, a somewhat familiar name, and he recounts the story in the article. Okay, so here's the deal. In the spring of 1829, while residing at Harmony, Pennsylvania, remember where he started the translation of the Book of Mormon, Joseph was invited to be a guest in the Peter Whitmer home in Fayette Township, Seneca County, New York, where he hoped to finish the translation. So they've got to get from Pennsylvania up to New York. Now it's Northern Pennsylvania to Southern New York. So it's not that huge a trip, but it's going to take a while, especially back then. So it goes on, but he, Joseph was concerned about safely transporting the plates that considerable distance. The Well, and that makes sense, right? Because you've got these gold plates and you don't want to be uh, waylaid on the road by robbers. It's also interesting that Joseph Smith, who presumably has the plates in Pennsylvania, doesn't want to take the plates with him, to New York. So there is a reason for this. The Lord told Joseph that an angel would call for them to transport them. So instead of taking the plates with them from Pennsylvania to New York, they're not going to do that. They're going to have the angel do that instead. And mm-hmm. the angel will transport them for safekeeping. <laughs> okay, now get to the story. Many years later, David Whitmer. Now this is David Whitmer, not Martin Harris, okay? David Whitmer seeming a little bit more with his feet on the ground. Mm-hmm. David Whitmer told Elder Joseph F. Smith of the Quorum of the Twelve, and who would eventually be president, about of the church, about his wagon trip to Fayette with Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. So it's David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, and Joseph Smith in the wagon making the trip. As they traveled across a section of prairie, they came upon a man walking along the road carrying something that was obviously heavy in a knapsack on his back invited to ride the man replied no i am going to camora mm. mm. so he's not going to uh, fayette which is where they're headed to right he's going to camora he's not going to Miner's hill either he's
0: going to the hill camora
2: well it depends on what camora we're talking about I guess so. Okay. So, puzzled, yeah. puzzled. Puzzle David this is David Whitmer, who's recounting the story. David looked around inquiringly, but when he turned again, the man was gone. Joseph. Oh, uh, David demanded of Joseph, "What does it mean?" Joseph informed him that the man was Moroni, and that the bundle on his back contained plates which Joseph had delivered to him before they departed from Harmony. Susquehanna County, and that he was taking them Mm. for safety and would return them when Joseph reached Father Whitmer's home. Mm. So here they're leaving from Pennsylvania, going up to New York. They got to make the trip. Joseph gives the plates to Moroni. They pass him on the roadway because I guess he's he's not exactly a very quick angel. This, is, this ties in with uh, angels not having wings in Mormon <laughs> theology. If he had wings, he could get there a lot quicker. But no, he's just got to sort of walk along the road and get passed on the road by this wagon. Anyway, he's not going to New York. He's taking the place for safekeeping to Camorra, where he will deposit them until such time as Joseph Smith and company make it to Fayette, New York, when the angel then will take them back out of the hill Camorra and in some manner get them back to joseph smith or joseph smith has to go get him himself i'm not sure
0: right yeah there i think you point out it's this interesting thing that angels and mormonism have to travel the same way the rest of us do they don't get any kind of bonus uh they don't have any kind of speed of light travel they can't snap their fingers or twinkle their nose um note too i shared that last quote by the lds church that they could not find any quotes they had they couldn't see a connection they didn't know of any quotes that existed Other than the Brigham Young quote, and here, by the way, there are 54 quotes. So there are 18, there are three columns of 18 uh, quotes each. And you can just see as I'm scrolling up all of those that there are plenty of quotes. Again, it feels as though the LDS church wants to pretend that treasure digging isn't a thing. And it really doesn't want to start, because it's going to have to, eventually it's going to have to, absorb this information. And to absorb this information is going to deeply uh, damage the narrative, the dominant narrative of Moroni and the restored gospel and the first vision. Once we understand the context of all this stuff that's going on, because I only read, I think, 10 or 9 or 10 quotes, there are 54 of them. Um, Once you understand all this information, and you absorb it in, you're going to have to create a completely different narrative in the church. The dominant narrative, as Richard Bushman said, is simply not true.
2: Yeah, but I'll tell you something. The non-dominant narrative is a lot more interesting.
0: A lot more cool, but it's not very faith-promoting. It doesn't have us believing Joseph is a legitimate good guy doing really good work. Rather, he's a scam artist or a fraud doing lots of crazy stuff, and the information is all there for people to read. You were such a skeptic, Bill. I know. That's that's me. I'm I'm a skeptic now. We're um, not going to go into this now, but Bill
2: Real and I have had this running gun battle about the motivations of Joseph Smith. Bill yeah. taking the position that he was a, a knowing scam artist and me taking the position that I don't know, but I think that the more likely he was actually sincere in much of what he did and actually believed uh, many of the things that he was saying, especially when it came to trying to find treasure under the earth with the rock and the hat.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm the belief of an unpious fraud, <laughs> and you're, and you're of the belief that it was a uh, that he was he was also deceived.
2: Oh, I don't even know if he, uh, now you're going to push me on it. I don't even want to go into being deceived. I think it's so romantic and wonderful. I no. mean, how exciting is this? How exciting would it be to have a cave with a with a guy uh, sitting on it uh, on a gold throne and all these plates and everything? I mean, talk about imbuing magic and uh, excitement into what would otherwise be, uh, I'm sure, a rather humdrum existence.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think for people to go out and try some treasure digging, you know, you and I probably did such a thing as a kid. I know we went out into our field and tried to find things and look around for stuff. I don't think that's the problem. I think when you start to manipulate people and um, do unhealthy things, trying to deceive and coerce others into believing things that aren't real, then I think you start to get yourself into trouble. But it's it's not a lie if you believe it. Yeah. There's so, <laughs> there's so much going on believing that he didn't know at some point that he was pulling. You know, it's for you to pretend you got this book of scripture out of your hat and a stone seems to test that. It seems to strain that theory a little bit.
2: Yes. Well, all I know is if I had dictated a book out of my hat, I probably think I was inspired to.
0: I, yeah, maybe. Unless, <laughs> unless the story was on the inside of the hat as you proposed.
2: I don't know. It's yeah. it's up in the air. It's one of the things that makes this so endlessly Endless fascinating.
0: It is fun. Super, super fun. Um, any other thoughts from you on this topic?
2: No, no. And I just want to say once again, I I had sort of heard, I you know, I heard about this Brigham Young quote, right? The one that I, I read at the end or not at the end but uh in the middle um about the cave right and i think that's sort of commonly heard by people in the church though not all the time um but the way it hooks into all this other stuff in miners hill i had no idea about this and i am thinking that yeah it was miners hill with the cave and um, that's where the cave was. I don't necessarily know what was going on in there. I don't know that anybody outside knew what was going on in there, but something was going on in there.
0: Yeah, something was going on in there, and nobody seems to know exactly what. Um, let me just make a couple little notes here, just to note a couple of donations that came in. By the way, I this week got us approved as a nonprofit on YouTube. Um, so I, have, I, I need to write. YouTube's. Uh, I need to contact them and just see if that reduces. Somebody told me that once you get approved as a nonprofit, they don't take thirty percent. They don't take anything. I want to mm-hmm. verify that that's true before I I tell people that. But we did have a couple donations come through. The first one was by, um, what's that say there? K is it K by K space B I or B L? Uh, ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cents. Rock on, you guys. Thanks for your work. Uh, you're welcome. And then one other donation came in. It's from for $4.99. Do you guys have a stream, labs, or something else for less taxed donations? Uh, Again, we'll check into the YouTube thing, but I think that that will no longer be 30%. Uh, But you can always donate to mormonismlive.org. Click the donate button and donate to our program. As you can see, th- these aren't simple topics to cover. We have to do a lot of reading. We have to do a lot of research. We have to kind of get our ducks in a row before we go on with you guys. If, if you could, uh, if you're enjoying the show and if you're getting something from it, and if these conversations are helping you in your faith transition or transition uh, uh, in adult development or in any other way, just deconstructing Mormonism or the, or the faith of your, the faith of your childhood, Uh, and maybe for most of us, some of our adulthood, uh, if it's beneficial to you, would you please donate? It's how we get to know that what we're doing is working and and is well received. And it's also how we, to be honest, benefit from all the time and energy that we put into putting these together.
2: And everyone said, amen.
0: Amen. So yeah, go to the mormonismlive.org and click the donate button um rfm anything else uh before we i guess we can do some calls and uh, see what people have to say i'm gonna pull that up i'll put the banner on now
2: maybe my son will call Uh, i don't know i talked to him earlier and while we're putting it up there can i tell you this story he told me from his mission in scotland There was this guy in, in the, the ward who stood up on Fast and Testimony Day. And apparently he was Polynesian, but he's living in Scotland. And he gets up there and he says uh, he wanted to bear his testimony about the Book of Mor- uh No, about the Word of Wisdom. About the Word of Wisdom. And the way he relates it, he talks in this Polynesian accent my son does to try and recreate what it was like to sit there in the audience and hear this gentleman stand up and say, uh, I, I want to bear my testimony. I can't do it like he can. I want to bear my testimony about the Word of Wisdom. So the other day, my wife got me very angry at her. So I punch her in the mouth. And the police come and they take me to the jail. And the next morning, they come to me and they say, do you want the coffee or do you want the tea? And I said, no. (laughs) And then he ended his testimony by saying, Brothers and sisters, temptation
0: is everywhere. <laughs> I I think he's uh, I think he's focused in the wrong uh, parts of his life. I
2: oh, but, I love that story.
0: Man, that's a good one. Uh, I love it, uh, folks. Four three five two hundred fist fist Uh, if you want to jump on the show we'll take a couple of calls and uh, and then we'll let you guys all get back to your evening festivities we had a problem with facebook and i think it's because of the post that i got in trouble for but again i was putting other stuff on and not having any issue Uh, i'll look into that this week but it was every place on facebook and all the other things worked Hmm. but just a note we normally get about 180 or so people watching this we have 171 in here right now so thank you to all of you who jumped over to youtube immediately and tuned in to watch this uh, it means it shows us that you love the program enough that if it's not in the first location where it should have been, that you went and found it. And so thank you to all of you that watch the show, uh, whether you watch it live, whether you watch it after the fact, or whether you listen to it as as an audio program. Um, we just appreciate everybody who uh, is involved in, in supporting us and uh, making these kinds of things possible.
2: Yeah. You know, Bill, the first couple of shows, I was very nervous about it being live and everything, but now they're up to show 16. I feel it's much more just getting together with friends uh, and acquaintances and just talking and sharing things. And it's much less nerve wracking for me now.
0: Yeah, it's not too bad, right? Like it, it seems pretty easy to occupy a half an hour and almost every time we're going over an hour and then we take a few phone calls and we get out of here and it seems pretty smooth. Uh so yeah, I agree with you. There's a little nervousness about whether we'll mess up, whether it'll be too difficult to do, but we're I think we're getting the hang of it. Uh Kyle, you are our first caller tonight on Mormonism Live with RFM and Bill Real. What's uh what's brewing up in the up in the noggin?
1: Well, lucky me. Wow. Look at that. Um, you know, through my faith transition, and I don't want to assume that, you know, we all have similar experiences, but my experience with other folks who have kind of transitioned away from the church is you kind of become more, I don't know, politically liberal. At least that's the case with me, right? And, um, and I found myself doing that. And however, I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on the state of kind of the more liberal side of the political spectrum that I kind of have embraced but find myself a little concerned about the authoritarian nature of the woke movement and I feel um you know echoes of this authoritarianism and this virtue signaling and you have to behave a certain way and fit into this tribe that I felt in the church and I'm just wondering is that just me do you guys feel the same way um, am be interested in other people who are watching commenting as well. Yeah.
0: And, uh, not thanks guys. Cool. We'll hang up and answer that. All right. So he's asking in terms of, for, I think he's saying two things. One is do, do all of us become more liberal as we leave the church. And you and I have this conversation a few times. We don't really talk politics much. We talk a couple times a week, uh, sometimes more. And, um, I've become more liberal. I, th- I think you point to maybe being a little more conservative having left the church, right?
2: Uh, I would say that uh, overall, I, I've certainly become more liberal in some areas having left the church. In other areas, I am not so liberal. So sure. without going into detail, I mean, like uh, it was a few years ago, five, six years ago that um, the issue of uh, gay marriage came up. In my state, obviously, this is before the Supreme Court had made their ruling. And, uh, you know, I voted for gay marriage, which I probably would not have done as an orthodox
0: member of the church. So it's more complex for you. It's it's not a cut and dry thing. And whereas I think I've pretty much gone more liberal on just about every issue, I still consider myself a moderate. um, But I'm much more liberal than I was 10 years ago as a believing Mormon. mm Mm-hmm. And and then the other thing he points to is this authoritarianism that's in Mormonism, and I, I don't really want to connect this to politics because I don't really think per se that we can just classify liberals or conservatives as authoritarian. I think that's also complex and messy, but what I think we can talk about is the idea that Mormonism used to be very authoritarian, and I think still tries to be in some places, but as Jana Reese just released this week, that there are surveys going out to the membership of the church, especially the younger members. And the church is saying, like, if you got problems, we want to know, like, are our meetings too long? Would you like us to make it so that missions can be whatever you want them to be? You can be a service mission. I mean, there was like 30 questions in the survey and they were all hitting on the church opening up space to be much more liberal and less authoritarian as it is in all of our heads constituted, right? And what we think Mormonism is. Yeah. uh,
2: And they kind of do this behind the scenes. And so that when they get the answers and then they make decisions, whether they adopt some of them, then it sort of becomes this revelation that now becomes its own form of of authoritarianism that gets imposed on the members, which may be uh, more relaxed than Mm -hmm. it was before, but it still tends to be as dogmatic as it was before.
0: Yeah. You know, the real profit in Mormonism is pilot programs and surveys. Yeah, and isn't that surprising? That's where the revelation happens. And PR agencies. If you really have a profit, do you need to do a pilot program?
2: Well, as Admiral Kirk once famously said at the end of a movie, what does God... What? James T. James James T. T. Admiral James T. Kirk. Tiberius. Yeah, he said what? What does God need with a starship?
0: (laughs) What does God need with a pilot program? does God already know if the program's going to work or not? What does an angel need with a knapsack? <laughs> what does an angel need with a knapsack? Well, I, don't I don't know. Just be a hobo that, you know, Joseph handed over a 20-cent piece to or something, and and now he just, you know, makes up the story. And
2: I'm wondering what it was made of. What was the material? Was it Kevlar knapsack to be holding those plates in without ripping?
0: And if you're Moroni, I mean, it's a small walk, I guess, because you've already walked to Manti and back, like – You as an angel taking a little 20-mile stroll or something, not a big deal, is it? Every now and then, you got to get out and stretch your legs. Awesome. Oh, boy. Uh, You are on the air, Mormonism Live. You're our second phone call. What's on your mind tonight?
1: Hey, uh, I just wanted to share a little anecdote about the Hill Cumorah. Please. Um, I was in the Hill Cumorah pageant a number of times, and uh, we really liked the story of the cave under the hill. That was pretty cool when we were there. Yeah. Also, one time I was just uh, BSing with some friends, and I said, hey, you know, this isn't the real Hill, Hill Camorra. The other one's over there, and I pointed off in some direction, and it could have very well been Miner's Hill. Turns out I wasn't too far off, so uh, I'll just let you guys comment
0: on that. Thanks. You didn't point to South America? No, no. Okay, all right. We'll let you go, caller. Thank you. All right, hey, thank real you. Real quick, who did you – Who did? oh, boy, I was going to ask him who he played at the Hill Cumorra pageant. I was just curious if he played just uh, just a run of the mill Nephite or Lamanite, or if he was somebody special in the show. I
2: think if he was Jesus, he would have told us.
0: Yeah, he probably would have bragged about it, right? Or
2: I would have sensed it. Somehow. I would. Have.
0: If I was Jesus, I at the Kilcomore pageant, I'd be telling everybody.
2: But what's interesting to me about what he said is that amongst the cast, they Thank know this story about the cave in the hill.
0: Yeah, yeah, they probably spend a little bit of time there, kind of setting things up and practicing. And maybe they get a tour. Certainly the conversation leads that way. At least that one year it did, huh?
2: Well, yeah. And there's all this technology nowadays, as I understand it, that you can actually fly above a a location and do this electronic pulse graph, whatever, and find out what's underneath the ground. Yeah. And they could do that.
0: Yeah. What they're not finding are metal plates or bone skeletons of army people that lost in a great battle of war. Or even a cave. You know, or even a cave. No, not in the Kilkamora, That's for sure. No, no, no. Uh, we'll take one more call if it comes in the next, say uh, 45 seconds or so. Otherwise we'll, uh, we'll end tonight's episode and everybody can check out, uh, check out all the resource notes we'll put on the podcast version.
2: Great. While we're waiting for that call to come in, I can plug next week's episode.
0: Ooh, I love it. What is the topic?
2: Where we're going to go, we're going to piggyback on what you've talked about. And we're going to go into a little bit more about Joseph Smith's money digging proclivities. Um, I went ahead and I reread, Ugh, excuse me, I getting myself a hernia lifting this oh, book up. Yeah. It's called uh, Look, Early it's,
0: Mormon. It's my favorite in Mormonism is D. Michael Quinn's Mormonism in the World Magic View.
2: Yes. I must have been holding it backwards because it says early Mormonism in the magic world. View.
0: Okay, yeah, that was it. I was just reading it wrong.
2: But I went back through this, uh, the chapter about the money digging. I've read it before, but they, he writes so densely. There are at least two bombshells that I will be dropping on mm. this program
0: next Ooh, week. I love it. There'll
2: be something good. And in addition to that, I will also explain what the faculty of
0: ABRAC means ooh from a from a magician himself yes hmm. i'll well, reveal the secret no call is coming in are you okay are with- you kidding me really okay there's 184 people watching right now by the way uh, so everybody everybody found us on youtube because well, we the spirit is not moving them because i think we've had our 184 is like our norm yeah, yeah. Are the line's down Are the lines? No, lines are up and working. Just nobody's calling. So we'll cut it short. We'll end the night. Okay. Uh, What should we end on? Should we end with anything special? Should we, should we plug our our guy again? Oh, here we got one call. It's all quickly. We'll get this one in.
2: I knew I I could shame someone into calling.
0: There you go. I love it. Shame and manipulation. Uh, Your name caller. Charlie, 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 you are the final caller. On Mormonism Live, right. you are talking to RFM and Bill Real. What uh, what do you got?
3: Well, I know we're talking about treasure digging today, and I was just listening to one of your guys' old podcasts. He um, talks about, awesome, about the treasure digging that actually made it into the Doctrine and Covenants, and I never noticed before because they never obviously emphasized it. Not really treasure digging, but the Salem section it is when they're going to
1: Salem to look for more treasure and the Lord says that they're going to find all this stuff and the Lord gives them
3: all the assurances that they're going to, Salem's going to be for their benefit. They're going to be able to get this
1: treasure and the church didn't scrub that out. And I wonder if that's ever going to come to fruition.
0: Mm, yeah. We, you, you never know if sections of the DNC will, will go by the wayside. If they do, my vote would be we start with section 132 mm. and we can leave the Salem one in a little longer. It's not hurting anybody, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you, caller.
2: It would almost draw more attention to it at this point, I think, Ooh. to remove it. But, I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to go from, like, I can't remember what section it is. If it's 49, it's not 49. But are you going to go, like, from 48 to 50?
0: Yeah. What are you going to do? You have to renumber all of them or you have to put something in its place. Is like, it going like, to be, like, oh, like when they took 111 out and put 132 in?
2: Oh, right. Or will it be like the 13th floor in the hospital?
0: Yeah, that doesn't exist. Right. Just, just get rid it. of it. Yeah, you got it. Well, my friend, it was another fun night. And uh, uh, our last little bit here is just uh, our normal endorsement from a past general authority. I love then, this part. And we'll end it out and we'll get out of here. Mormon is live.
1: Better than touching your own little factory.